This podcast is produced by Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. We would love to have you join us at one of our church services on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. Today's episode features a speech from a 2022 family conference hosted by the British Reformed Fellowship, the topic of which was union with Jesus Christ. We hope you are edified by this content. I would like to make two remarks by way of introduction this morning, and first of all, some specification regarding the doctrinal field in which we will labor this morning. I do not intend to provide a robust, comprehensive, antithetical explanation of the doctrine of sovereign double predestination. And you can think Romans 11, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Neither do I intend to engage at all the distinction between supra-lapsarianism and infra-lapsarianism, which refers to the logical order of the decrees of God's eternal counsel with respect to election. Furthermore, I will attempt no polemical engagement with the doctrine of the pactum salutis, which refers to a pact between the first two persons of the Godhead in eternity. It's a doctrine that is well established in the Reformed tradition, but has been rejected by Herman Huxma and the PRC, and that for good reason. So sovereign double predestination, that's one. The supra-infra distinction, that's two. And the pactum salutis, that's three. Those are all related subjects, but each one of them is another subject for another time, as this morning we want to focus on the theme of union with Christ. And secondly, by way of introduction, I want to lay before you the four main parts of my lecture. First of all, I want to explain union with Christ. This is the fundamental concept that we seek to apprehend in this conference. I understand the introductory speech has been given. There may be some overlap here and there with what has been set forth yesterday by Professor Inglesma, but because this is the core concept for all of us this week, uh, I don't think that will be a bad thing, and it will also help serve the purpose of this lecture. So first of all, union with Christ. In the second place, our eternal election in Christ. Third, the relation between our eternal election in Christ and our living union with Christ. And then we will conclude with our assurance of our own personal election. So let's begin with union with Christ, which is that doctrine taught most prominently in the scriptures by that little phrase, we just read it out of Ephesians, in Christ, especially as it's found in the Pauline epistles. Another example, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now this is a most marvelous truth, that we are in Christ, that we are with Christ, that we have union with Christ. Did any one of the Philistines or Philistines or Philistines ever confess, I am in Dagon? 
Have the Muslims ever confessed, I am in the Prophet Muhammad? And do the Buddhists confess, I am in Buddha? The Gospel of Biblical Christianity declares the marvelous truth that we are in Christ, with Christ, having union with Christ. And what makes that so extraordinary is that He is the Son of God. And you and and me are little worms of the dirt. And we are in Him. But what does it mean? I want to begin with the negative and give you six points from the negative perspective. First of all, our union with Christ does not consist in very close physical proximity. You have an iron axe head and the wooden handle, and they have an inorganic physical union that consists of nothing more than a very close physical proximity. They share a physical attachment as two objects that are very tightly joined together. And if you're out in the forest chopping wood and your axe head flies off the handle and lands in the dirt, hopefully not in a body of water because you're not the prophet, then you go retrieve your axe head and you take the handle and press it back in so they are united again. There were people in Jesus' ministry who had such a union with Christ. That kind of closeness. Simeon held Him in His arms. There were babies who had Jesus touch them. The beloved Apostle John reclined in his bosom. And Judas Iscariot laid a kiss upon him. That latter example being proof that you, one can have very close physical proximity with Christ and still perish in hell, lacking no, having no saving union. So when the Bible teaches that we are in Christ, having union with Christ, it does not refer to a very close physical proximity. However, I would say it is my earnest expectation that one day I in my glorified body will be very close to Jesus in His glorified body so that I can look right into His eyes. Secondly, our union with Christ is not an organic, that is living, physical union. Like that between a branch and the vine. Or even that corporeal union between the unborn baby and his mother. Now, there is a most splendid union, and the mother knows this especially well, between the unborn baby and the mother as the baby is in the mother. And these two human beings share one biological life. Although the Anabaptists denied it, Belgian Confession, Article 18, Christ himself was actually united to the Virgin Mary in such a union. He was conceived by the Holy Ghost in her womb. And He was a partaker of her flesh and blood so that Luke 1 verse 42 says He was the, is the fruit of her womb. However, we are not in Christ in the same sense that Christ was in Mary or any baby is in the womb of His mother. 
Now, oddly, the, the Roman Catholic Church with its doctrine of transubstantiation really teaches this kind of u- union because supposedly in the Mass, the physical body of Jesus is under the appearance of bread so that when the worshiper takes that piece of bread, he puts it in his mouth, he chews it, he swallows it, the physical body of Jesus is being digested and now carried through his bloodstream so that Christ physically is in the worshiper. But our saving union with Christ does not consist of an organic, physical union of one shared biological life. Third, our union with Christ is not the fusion of our persons. In that case, you as a person are mystically absorbed into the person of Jesus or the person of Jesus is mystically absorbed into your person so that distinct personal identity is obliterated. You would be Jesus and Jesus would be you. This is not only the teaching of various mystics, but it is essentially the teaching of any professing Christian who denies that the believer actually performs holy spiritual activity and proposes that Christ believes for me, repents for me, obeys for me, loves and worships God for me, in me. Our saving union with Christ is not a fusion of persons. Fourth, our union with Christ is not identical to, but is distinct from and deeper than communion with Christ. Some theologians do not distinguish union and communion. The Westminster Larger Catechism, for example, does. I will not quote it, but you can reference Westminster Larger Catechism, question and answer 65, 66, and 69. Communion with Christ is the conscious experience of fellowship with Him knowing Him by faith as your Savior, hearing Him in the Holy Gospel. Union with Christ is deeper. So that even if you lose the conscious experience of sweet communion with Jesus, as a believer might, when he persists in some gross sin, or maybe the believer is struggling for a time, and being overcome by perplexing doubt and not enjoying the experience of rich communion with Christ. He never loses union with Christ. Fifth, union with Christ is not merely a legal union in which He is our representative head. Vladimir Putin is the representative head of the Russian people as their head of state. And when Putin declares war on Ukraine and invades the nation of Ukraine, the entire nation of Russia is at war with Ukraine by virtue of the act of their representative head in whom they are constituted. Though they have no organic union with Putin, they are not in Putin as he was once in his mother. They're in Him representatively. We are united to Christ our head legally or representatively. 
even as all men by nature are united to Adam legally or representatively, however, as necessary and important as legal union with Christ is, it is distinct from our living, organic union with Him. And finally, sixth, union with Christ is not merely union with some or all of His benefits. United to Christ, we are a partaker of all of His benefits. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. However, union with Christ is not simply union with the doctrine of sanctification. It's more than being united to benefits. So positively now, our union with Christ is the real, saving, spiritual, living union that each elect sinner has with the very person, Jesus Christ, by virtue of the Spirit's entrance into our hearts. Now, it's, it's rather difficult to describe this concept positively, as was noted last night. Many theologians refer to it as the mystical union. It's a spiritual union. It goes beyond our senses. It transcends our finite understanding. But in order to distinguish it from our eternal union with Christ and election and our legal union with Christ as representative head, I will simply refer to it as our living union. And the most important point, and this is the one point I would hope everyone can remember and take home from the conference, the most important point about union with Christ is that the Holy Spirit creates and we could even say essentially is this union. That is what you must understand. The Spirit. Now, Prof. Engelsma concluded last night with 1 Corinthians 6, the last five or six verses, especially 18 and following. I'd like to read 16 and 17 in that same context. 1 Corinthians 6, 16 and 17. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. A man has a body. He finds a harlot and she has a body. And he goes in unto her. And there is a union created. And the Apostle says, one body. I have a spirit. That is, I have a soul in which there is a spiritual life. Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit. And when I am in union with Jesus Christ, there is now a spiritual union that is affected when His Holy Spirit enters my soul so that by the bond of the Holy Spirit, we become one Spirit. We do not become the Holy Spirit. We become one Spirit so that we share the same holy intentions and the same holy affections 
and the same holy longings for God. I think of Psalm 63, which we sang this morning, and Psalm 42, the heart panting after the water brooks, so my soul panteth after thee. I believe those two psalms together express in the highest possible way what it actually is to be in union with Christ, to experience that union. You are one spirit. And as it were, you breathe together after, pant after, long after the living God. Union with Christ. Created by and essentially is the Spirit. Although you can't see this, you can't perceive this with your senses, it's a real and living union as real and living as the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit makes this union and is this union so that when Jesus breathes His Spirit into your heart, though you're not even conscious of it, you are instantly united to Christ. You are in Him. He is in you. But before that Spirit comes into your heart, you do not have living union with Christ. A man might be so physically close to Jesus that he can kiss Jesus. But if the Spirit is not in his heart, he has no union with Christ. And then you see the Spirit does not unite us merely to benefits, but to a person, making possible the conscious experience of communion by faith in a relationship of mutual love and familiarity closer than that of a husband and a wife. It's amazing. It is amazing. Union with Christ. And then consider that it is an indissoluble, everlasting, unbreakable union so that the axe head might fly off the handle. Union broken. The baby ordinarily will emerge from the mother's womb and the umbilical cord is severed, union broken. His wife dies, her husband passes away, and the marital union is broken. The branch may be cut off from the tree, the union broken. There is nothing and there is no one that can sever your union with Christ. Romans 8 verse 39, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Christ Himself said of His Spirit in John 14 verse 16 that He will abide with you forever. Now, After last night's speech and the first section of this speech, we have a basic beginning understanding of this grand subject of union with Christ. Now that we have that, let's see what stands behind it as our election in Christ. So what we want to do now in our mind is go back before the Spirit entered our heart, whenever that was. Go back before you were born. Go back before Jesus was born and walked on this earth. Go back before Adam sinned. Go before Adam was created. Go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis 1 verse 1 when God laid the foundation of the universe by creating the heavens and the earth. Go back before Genesis 1 verse 1 and now to speak as a man as it were, take your head and stick it up into 
and peer back into the eternal past when there was no creation, there was no time, there was nothing outside of God in that eternal past. That reality the Scripture calls God's eternal counsel, which is a reality that Scripture describes as being before the foundation of the world. John 17, verse 24, and as we read Ephesians 1, verse 4. As we poke our head up into eternity, let's, look, let's notice two things according to the infallible Scriptures. Number one, the Bible teaches that in eternity past, the triune God elected Jesus Christ to be our head and mediator. God elected Jesus Christ. The object of this election is not the second person of the Trinity as such. God the Father did not elect God the Son. God can never be the object of election because God is always the subject of election. God is always the one performing the action of election. He's the electing God, the choosing God, the appointing God. God the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is the subject of election. And therefore, the second person of the Trinity as such is not the object of this election. Neither is the object of this, of this election that group identified in Scripture as the elect, the company of the predestinated, distinguished from the reprobate. The first object of election is Jesus Christ, whom some theologians call the God-man, the mediator. This is the teaching of Scripture First of all, that God elected Christ is implied in Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4, which we read. I'll come back to that passage in just a moment. How can you plant a flag into a yard if there is no yard? You plant the flag in the yard. How can there be election in Christ if there is no Christ? Christ is first. Secondly, Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Although my servant has reference to Old Testament Israel, it applies ultimately to Christ, as is unmistakably clear from the fact that the Spirit applies Isaiah 42, verse 1 to Jesus in Matthew 12, verses 17 and 18, which I will not read at this time. So that Jesus Christ, the man on earth, preaching and performing miracles, of Him God says, My servant, mine elect. Similarly, we read in 1 Peter 2, verse 6 of Christ, Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Fourth, 
When you read through the book of Revelation, repeatedly you will read in that book of Christ Himself saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord. Revelation 1 verse 8 and many passages that follow, Christ is the beginning. He is the eternal beginning. He is the fountain of all that we will ever know and enjoy in God's covenant because He is first in God's decree of election. And finally, Revelation 21 verse 27 describes election as being written in the Lamb's book of life. But before your name was ever written in the Lamb's book of life, His name was written on the cover. It's His book. The Lamb's book of life. Christ. Christ was chosen and appointed and we in Him written in the Lamb's book of life. Christ was elected as surely as you and I were. He was elected. He was chosen. But He was not elected unto a gracious salvation from sin. Christ was chosen to be the head in whom all of the elect would be chosen and saved. Christ was chosen to be the mediator who would come into our flesh and accomplish our gracious salvation. Christ, when He was appointed as the head and mediator of His elect people, God was appointing Him to be The man, the man, the servant of Jehovah, the friend, the friend of the living God par excellence. Christ will have the preeminence and in him all the fullness shall dwell. As we read this morning, Colossians 1, 18 and 19. Christ will be the image of the invisible God in this world. God will have in the visible world the image of Himself. And it will not be Adam in the beginning. Adam must make way for the one who from all eternity has been appointed by God to be the image of Him. And so Adam was made, quote, a figure of Him that was to come. Romans 5, verse 14. God chose Christ, and because election is always in love, he chose him in love. Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. From all eternity in the Godhead, there is this perfect unity and bliss and communion and love between the Father and the Son as they delight in one another in the Holy Spirit. But it was also in that incomprehensible love that the perfectly united eternal three, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, found sheer delight in appointing Christ, the Son made man, to be the head, the mediator of the elect. God's man in the visible world. And Jesus knew this love as we read yesterday morning, John 17, verse 24. Father, I will that they also whom Thou hast given Me be with Me where I am, 
that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. So as we peer into eternity past, we see according to Scripture, God choosing, electing Jesus Christ, head and mediator. And now we behold our election in Him. Ephesians 3 concludes with Ephesians 1 verse 3 concludes with Christ and then verse 4 continues according as He, God, hath chosen us in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world. I will not quote but simply reference 2 Timothy 1 verse 9 and then also call your attention to all those passages in the Gospel according to John in which Christ speaks of those whom the Father had given Him. And we read John 17 yesterday morning, for example, verse 24 again. Father, I will that they also whom Thou hast given Me. And these are the ones that the Father gave Jesus all the way back in eternity. That we are elected in Christ does not mean that Christ is the ground of our election. We were not chosen because of Christ. The ground of our election is God's eternal good pleasure. Ephesians 1 verse 5, having predestinated us according to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. We were elected in Christ simply because it pleased God. His good pleasure. Our election in Christ means, and I don't know how else to put it, that in God's eternal counsel, God never conceived of us individually. He never even conceived of us corporately outside of Jesus Christ. He always conceived of us as being one with Christ. In the distant reaches of eternity, we have always been in Christ. So that election was never a bare, abstract choice of certain persons. But God's election is His loving choice of the church as the body for Christ the head. God did not appoint us to salvation because of any deservedness in us, anything He would see in us, what we would do, who we would become. We were chosen according to His good pleasure in Christ. And therefore, Christ must have the preeminence in the church and in your heart and in your life Life and the church must preach Christ and only Christ. We find all of our life and joy in Christ, having been eternally chosen in Him. Now, let's explain the relation between our eternal election in Christ and our living union with Christ with a negative statement and a positive statement. The negative statement is 
although we are eternally elected to Christ, we do not actually have living union with Christ until the Spirit enters our hearts. Our eternal election in Christ is not to be equated with our living, saving union with Christ. Election occurs in eternity and is our appointment unto salvation. Living union with Christ occurs in time and is our salvation. And Paul, by inspiration, makes that very clear in his letter to the Ephesians, whom he tells right at the outset that they were eternally chosen in Christ, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. But he will go on to tell them in chapter 2, verse 1, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. So there was a time in the life of the Ephesian believers when they were actually not believers. They were not spiritually alive in Christ. There was a time when they were outside of Christ and dead. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, At that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope. And with it, can you imagine how wretched this is? Well, indeed, without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Again, there was a time in the life of the Ephesian believers when they did not have God and they were without Jesus Christ. They were far from God. According to God's eternal counsel, We are always in Christ from everlasting to everlasting. According to our actual existence on this earth, in time, in history, as creatures made by God, we are by nature dead in sin, without God and separated from Christ, having no living union with Christ until... And this is the one point I want you to remember and never forget from this conference. Until the Holy Spirit makes that bond. That's the critical moment when the Spirit makes His triumphal entrance. Now to use a familiar illustration, a man wants to build a house. So he draws out the plan for his house. Here's the house plan. And he also has on the plan marked out the electrical grid, the power plant. And he draws the line, the electrical lines between the house and the power plant so he can have energy coming to his house with heat and light and they can live in his house. The plan. Then he goes and he builds his house and the whole house is finished. And over here is the power plant, the electrical grid. And all this energy, it can bring light and heat to his house for life. But until the electrical line connects the house to the power plant, there's no light. There's no heat. There's no life in that house. Somewhat similarly, God has His plan from all eternity. 
as He elects you in Christ and will unite you to Christ with a living bond and He creates you in this world. But until the Holy Spirit forms that bond to the living Lord Jesus Christ, there is no light. There is no warmth. There is no life. The Spirit makes the bond and essentially is the bond. So, the negative, although we are eternally elected in Christ, we do not actually have living, saving union with Christ until the Spirit forms that bond. The positive statement is because we are eternally elected in Christ, God surely, certainly will unite us savingly to Christ in a living union. So that election stands behind our living union with Christ as the root, as the source, as the cause, as the foundation of it. It guarantees it. To put it differently, the electing God is the sovereign and gracious source and cause of our union with Christ and salvation. He will bring it to pass. Election is not conditional. Salvation is not conditional. As Arminianism teaches, God does not look into the future to see if we will unite ourselves to Christ by believing in Him through the choice of our own supposed free will. God elects in Christ unconditionally. And the result of that election in Christ is salvation in its first bestowal and the ongoing application of salvation all the way to the end, in which that salvation never at any point in the way depends upon any of our willing, our working, or our worth. Because all of salvation flows out of that election in Christ, God's eternal electing will, so that the vilest sinner the lowliest beggar. Whether that be me, or whether that be you, or whether that be someone you know about whom you're quite convinced that person will never be able to be saved. The vilest sinner can be saved because salvation does not depend upon us, but moment by moment by moment, going back to its first bestowal, it depends upon the goodwill of the eternally electing God who chooses His people in Christ. That guarantees our salvation that underscores the absolute sovereignty of God. So I make my plans, you make your plans, we all have plans and they often never come to fruition. But God is God. All whom He eternally elects in Christ, He will surely unite to Christ by the Spirit. Let's conclude with the sweetness that is reassuring to the soul our own personal election in Christ. We can know our own personal election in Christ that which happened way back in eternity past before the foundation of the world. That's not by attempting to find a ladder somewhere 
You climb all the way up that ladder into the highest heights of heaven to try to pry open the Lamb's book of life to find your name. You can't do that. It's not by having some bizarre, otherworldly experience. Now I know. It's not by finding some secret code in the Scriptures. If you are in union with Christ, believing in Christ by faith, you're elect. For faith is the first and sure fruit of election. Faith. When the gospel is preached, there's always two responses to there's two responses to the gospel. Either a man believes in Jesus Christ, embraces him as his own personal savior, or the man or woman rejects Christ in unbelief. So how do you respond to the gospel? Now, don't give place to the devil, no, not for a moment, to complicate this and induce doubt. Well, yes, I believe, but my, my faith isn't always so strong. Maybe I don't believe. Maybe I'm just fooling myself, as many fool themselves. Maybe God doesn't even want me to believe. Don't complicate this. Do you believe in Jesus, a poor, wretched sinner who finds salvation in Him, trusting in Him alone? The Canons of Dort say in Head 1, Article 12, the elect in due time, though in various degrees and in different measures, attain to the assurance of this their election, of this their eternal and unchangeable election not by inquisitively prying into the secret and deep things of God, but by observing in themselves with a spiritual joy and holy pleasure the infallible fruits of election pointed out in the Word of God, such as a true faith in Christ. And then other spiritual activity inside Filial fear, a godly sorrow for sin, a hungering and thirsting after righteousness. There are various degrees of assurance of election from person to person. And even in the believer himself from time to time. But God gives to His children this assurance. John 6, 37-39 all that the Father giveth to me. Election, says Jesus. All that the Father giveth to me shall come to me faith. And him that cometh to me faith, I will in no wise cast out. Come to Christ in faith. And Christ will never cast you out. And that coming to Christ in faith is the evidence of election. For that faith is the fruit of election. Then don't be frightened by the destruction of the son of perdition, Judas Iscariot, and others like him who are hypocrites. Unless you're living like Judas. Unless you're living like Judas unbelieving and carnal 
putting all your confidence in your own flesh, don't fret that you are reprobate as He was. Canons 1.17 says of those who struggle with doubt, they're not to be alarmed at the mention of reprobation, nor rank themselves among the reprobate, but diligently to persevere in the use of means and with ardent desires, devoutly and humbly, to wait for a season of richer grace. As believers, we can know our personal election in Christ and knowing it, we know that which is most sweet to the soul. God has loved us from eternity. In all His innumerable thoughts, which are more than the grains of sand by the sea, He has thought of you eternally, believer. He has never thought of us of ourselves. He has always thought of us in all those eternal thoughts. He's always thought of us in Christ. Now imagine Isaac and Rebekah meeting each other for the very first time. She comes riding up on her camel, Abraham's servant with her. She gets off her camel. She walks up to Isaac, this man. They meet each other for the first time. The scriptural record tells us he takes her into his mother's tent and they're married. And he says, Rebecca, I love you. But imagine if Isaac had said, Rebecca, I have always loved you. I've loved you for years and years, even though that was impossible because they had never met each other. Just imagine that it were so, that he says, Rebecca, I've loved you for a long, long time. And what that, must have, what that would have done to her soul, securing her soul, that this man has been thinking about her, having thoughts of love toward her, affection toward her, desiring to do her good. He's, he's seen her for years as being very precious and dear, how that would have moved her soul. When God declares to you and me in the Gospel, I love you, that goes all the way back to before the foundation of the world. He set His love upon us in Christ Jesus. If that's not enough to move us to joyful and grateful worship, then consider that God eternally hated some people and reprobated some unto destruction in the way of their sin. Reprobation always serves election and reprobation serves our own personal appreciation of our election in Christ because there's no difference between Jacob and Esau and there's no difference between John and Judas Iscariot and there's no difference between you and me and any ungodly neighbor we may meet who will perish everlastingly. There is no difference. And when you go all the way back to before the foundation of the world, why did God set His love upon you? Why not this one? Why not that one? Why did He set His love upon you in Christ? That's the great question. 
And the Bible says, because it pleased Him. His eternal good pleasure. That's what moved Him. Loved from all eternity. How reassuring this is. This high and heavenly doctrine of our eternal election in and our living an unbreakable union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening to this episode. We will feature more speeches from the 2022 British Reform Fellowship Conference in upcoming weeks. Please send any feedback or questions you may have to hope rwc at gmail.com and we will respond promptly.